The Mystical City of God, The Incarnation Book 3 Chapter 12 The Venerable Sister Mary of Jesus of Argreta, describes the first acts of the Most Holy Soul of Christ our Lord in the first instant of His conception, and of the corresponding acts of His Most Pure Mother. 144. In order to understand what were the first acts of the Most Holy Soul of Christ our Lord, we must refer to that which has been said in the preceding chapter, namely that all that substantially belonged to this divine mystery, the formation of the body, the creation and the infusion of the soul and the union of the individual humanity with the person of the word, happened and was completed in one act or instant. So we cannot say that in any moment of time Christ our highest good was only man. For from the first instant he was man and true God, as soon as his humanity arrived at being man, he was also God, therefore he could not at any time be called a mere man, not for one instant, but from the very beginning he was God-man or man-God. And as the active exercise of the faculties is coexistent with operative essences, therefore the most holy soul of Christ our Lord, in the same instant in which the incarnation took place, was beatified by intuitive vision and love. According to our way of speaking, the powers of his intellect and will, immediately united with the divinity itself. For his human essence joined the divinity in one instant by hypostatic union, and thus his human faculties and their most perfect activity were united with the essence of God himself, so that both in essence and in operation he was entirely deified. 145. The wonder about this sacrament is that so much glory, Indeed the greatness of the immense divinity, was enclosed within such a small space, not larger than the body of a bee, or not greater than a small almond. For the dimension of the most holy body of Christ was not any greater than that at the instant when the conception and hypostatic union took place. Moreover in this small space was the highest glory as well as the capability for suffering, for the humanity was at the same time glorified and also passable, it was both a comprehensor and a wayfarer, possessing heaven though yet on his pilgrimage to heaven. God however, in his infinite power and wisdom, could thus contract himself and enclose his infinite deity within the sphere of a body thus minute by a new and admirable mode of existence, without in the least ceasing to be God. By the same omnipotence, he provided that this most holy soul of Christ in its superior faculties and in its most noble operations, should be in the state of glory and enjoying beatitude. While all this immense glory was at the same time compressed, as it were, into the superior parts of his soul, suspending the effects and gifts of glory, that would otherwise naturally have communicated themselves to his body. On this account he could be at the same time a wayfarer, subject to suffering, enabling him to procure our salvation by means of his cross passion and death. 146. In order to be fully equipped for these, and for whatever the most holy humanity was to perform, all the habits, natural to his faculties and necessary for their activity and operation both as comprehensor and as wayfarer, were infused into it at the moment of his conception. Thus he was furnished with the infused science of the blessed, with the sanctifying grace and the gifts of the Holy Ghost which according to Isaiah rested upon the Christ, Isaiah 11 2. 
He possessed all the virtues, except faith and hope, for these are incompatible with the beatific vision and possession and were wanting in him. Likewise were wanting in the holy of the holy ones, all other virtues which presuppose any imperfection. Since he could not sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. The dignity and excellence of his science and grace, and the virtues and perfections of Christ our Lord need not be mentioned here, for that is taught by the sacred doctors and masters of theology in a profuse manner. For me it is sufficient to state that all this was as perfect as was possible to the divine power and that it cannot be encompassed by human understanding. For the most holy soul of Christ drank from the very fountain of the divinity, Psalm 35:10, and could do so without limit or retrenchment, as David says in Psalm 109:7. Therefore he must have been possessed of the plenitude of all virtues and perfections. 147. Thus adorned and deified by the divinity and its gifts, the most holy soul of Christ our Lord proceeded in its operations in the following order. Immediately it began to see and know the divinity intuitively as it is in itself and as it is united to his most holy humanity. Loving it with the highest beatific love and perceiving the inferiority of the human nature in comparison with the essence of God. The soul of Christ humiliated itself profoundly, and in this humility it gave thanks to the immutable being of God for having created it and for the benefit of the hypostatic union by which though remaining human it was raised to the essence of God. It also recognized that his most holy humanity was made capable of suffering, and was adapted for attaining the end of the redemption. In this knowledge it offered itself as the Redeemer in sacrifice for the human race, Psalm 39 8, accepting the state of suffering and giving thanks in his own name and in the name of mankind to the Eternal Father. He recognized the composition of his most holy humanity, the substance of which it was made, and how most holy Mary by the force of her charity and of her heroic virtues, furnished its substance. He took possession of this holy tabernacle and dwelling, rejoicing in its most exquisite beauty, and well pleased, reserved as his own property, the soul of this most perfect and most pure creature for all eternity. He praised the Eternal Father for having created her and endowed her with such vast graces and gifts. For having exempted her and freed her from the common law of sin, as his daughter, while all the other descendants of Adam have incurred its guilt, Romans 5:18. He prayed for the Most Pure Lady and for Saint Joseph, asking eternal salvation for them. All these acts, and many others, were most exalted and proceeded from him as true God and man. Not taking into account those that pertain to the beatific vision and love, these acts and each one by itself, were of such merit that they alone would have sufficed to redeem infinite worlds if such could exist. 148. Even the act of obedience alone, by which the most holy humanity of the word subjected itself to suffering and prevented the glory of his soul from being communicated to his body, was abundantly sufficient for our salvation. But although this sufficed for our salvation, nothing would satisfy his immense love for men except the full limit of effective love, John 13:1. for this was the purpose of his life, that he should consume it in demonstrations and tokens of such intense love, 
that neither the understanding of men nor of angels was able to comprehend it. And if in the first instant of his entrance into the world he enriched it so immeasurably, what treasures, what riches of merits must he have stored up for it, when he left it by his passion and death on the cross after thirty-three years of labor and activity all divine. O immense love! O charity without limit! O mercy without measure! O most generous kindness! And on the other hand, O ingratitude and base forgetfulness of mortals in the face of such unheard of and such vast benefaction! What would have become of us without him? How much less could we do for this our Redeemer and Lord, even if he had conferred on us but small favors, while now we are scarcely moved and obliged by his doing for us all that he could? If we do not wish to treat as a Redeemer him who has given us eternal life and liberty, let us at least hear him as our teacher, let us follow him as our leader, as our guiding light which shows us the way to our true happiness. 149. This Lord and Master did not work for Himself, nor did He preempt His soul, nor gain this augmentation of grace for Himself, but entirely for us. He had no need of all this, nor could He receive an increase of grace or glory, since He was filled with them John 1:14, as St. John says, for He was the only begotten of the Father at the same time that He was man. In this He had no equal, nor could He have an imitator. All the saints and mere creatures gained merits for themselves and labored for reward, the love of Christ alone was without self-interest and altogether for us. And if he wished to enter and go through the school of bodily experience of this life, Luke 2:52, it was in order to teach us and enrich us by his obedience, Hebrews 5:8, while he turned over to us his infinite merits and his example, in order that we might be wisely instructed in the art of loving. For this is not learned perfectly by affection and desire, unless it is truly and effectively practiced in deeds. I do not enlarge upon the mysteries of the most holy life of Christ our Lord, on account of my incapacity, and I refer to the Gospels, selecting only that which will seem necessary for the heavenly history of His Mother, Our Lady. For the lives of this Son and His Most Holy Mother, are so intimately connected and intertwined with each other, that I cannot avoid making references to the Gospels and to add other facts, which are not mentioned by them concerning the Lord, and which were not necessary in their narratives for the first ages of the Catholic Church. 150. These operations of Christ our Lord in the first instant of His conception were followed, in another essential instant, by the beatific vision of the divinity, which we have mentioned in the preceding chapter, for in one instant of time, many instants of essence can take place. In this vision the heavenly lady perceived with clearness and distinction the mystery of the hypostatic union of the divine in the human natures in the person of the eternal word, and the most holy trinity confirmed her in the title and the rights of mother of God. This in all rigor of truth she was, since she was the natural mother of a son who was eternal God with the same certainty and truth as he was man. Although this great lady did not directly cooperate in the union of the divinity with the humanity, she did not on this account lose her right to be called the mother of the true God, for she concurred by administering the material and by exerting her faculties, as far as it pertained to a true mother, 
and to a greater extent than to ordinary mothers, since in her the conception and the generation took place without the aid of a man. Just as in other generations the participants, which bring them about in the natural course, are called father and mother. Each furnishing that which is necessary without concurring directly in the creation of the soul, nor in its infusion into the body of the child. It's also so, and with greater reason, most holy Mary must be called, and did call herself, Mother of God. For she alone concurred in the generation of Christ, true God and man as a mother, to the exclusion of any other natural cause, and only through this concurrence of Mary in the generation, Christ, the man-God was born. 151. The Virgin Mother of Christ, also understood in this vision, the future mysteries of the life and death of her sweetest Son, and of the redemption of the human race, together with those of the new law of the gospel which was to be established in connection with it. To her were also manifested other great and profound secrets, which were made known to none of the other saints. The Most Prudent Queen, seeing herself thus in the immediate presence of the Deity and furnished with the plenitude of divine gifts and science as became the Mother of the Word, lost in humility and love, adored the Lord in His infinite essence, and without delay also in its union with the most holy humanity. She gave Him thanks for having favored her with the dignity of Mother of God and for the favors done to the whole human race. She gave thanks and glory also for all the mortals. She offered herself as an acceptable sacrifice in his service, in the rearing up and nourishing of her sweetest son, ready to assist and cooperate, as far as on her part it would be possible in the work of the redemption. The Holy Trinity accepted and appointed her as the coadjutrix in this sacrament. She asked for new graces and divine light for this purpose and for directing herself in the worthy administration of her office as Mother of the Incarnate Word that she might treat him with the veneration and magnanimity due to God himself. She offered to her holiest son all the children of Adam yet to be born, and the saints of Limbo. And in the name of all and of herself she performed many acts of heroic virtue and asked for great favors, which however I will not stop to mention, as I have already done so regarding other instances on different occasions. For from these it can easily be conjectured what petitions this heavenly queen made on this occasion, which so far excelled all the other fortunate and happy days of her previous life. 152. But she was especially persistent and fervent in her prayer to obtain guidance from the Almighty, for the worthy fulfillment of her office as mother of the only begotten of the Father. For this, before all other graces, her humble heart urged her to desire, and this was especially the subject of her solicitude, that she might be guided in all her actions as becomes the mother of God. The Almighty answered her, My dove, do not fear for I will assist you and guide you, directing you in all things necessary for the service of my only begotten Son. With this promise she came to herself and issued from her ecstasy, in which all that I have said had happened and which was the most wonderful she ever had. Restored to her faculties, her first action was to prostrate herself on the earth and adore her holiest Son, God, and man, conceived in her virginal womb. For she had not done this yet with her external and bodily senses and faculties. 
nothing that she could do in the service of her creator, did this most prudent mother leave undone. From that time on, she was conscious of feeling new and divine effects in her holiest soul, and in her exterior and interior faculties. And although the whole tenor of her life had been most noble both as regards her body as her soul, yet on this day of the incarnation of the Word it rose to still greater nobility of spirit and was made more godlike by still higher reaches of grace and indescribable gifts. 153. But let no one think that the purest mother was thus favored and so closely united with the humanity and divinity of her holiest son, only in order to continue to enjoy spiritual delights and pleasures, free from suffering and pain. Not so, for in closest possible imitation of her sweetest son, this lady lived to share both joy and sorrow with him. The memory of what she had so vividly been taught concerning the labors and the death of her holiest son was like a sword piercing her heart. This sorrow was proportionate to the knowledge and love which such a mother had of such a son, and which his presence and intercourse so continually recalled to her mind. Although the whole life of Christ and of his most holy mother was a continued martyrdom and suffering like that of the cross, and was filled with incessant pain and labors, yet in the most pure and loving heart of the heavenly queen there was also this special feature of suffering, that to her inward sight is a most loving mother, the passion, torments, ignominies and death of her son were forever present. And by this continued sorrow of thirty-three years she took upon herself the long vigil of our redemption and during all this time this sacrament was concealed in her bosom without companionship or alleviation from any creatures. 154. With this loving sorrow, full of the sweetest anguish, she often looked upon her holiest son both before and after his birth, and speaking to him from her innermost heart, she would repeat these words. Lord and God of my soul, most sweet son of my womb, why have you given me the position as mother and yet connected with it the sorrowful thought of losing you, leaving me an orphan, bereft of your desirable company? Scarcely are you put in possession of a body for your earthly life, when you are notified of the sentence of a sorrowful death for the rescue of men. The first of your actions is one of superabundant merit in satisfaction for his sins. Oh would that the justice of the Eternal Father were thereby satisfied, and your sufferings and death fall upon me. From my body and blood you have composed your own, without which it would not be possible for you to suffer, since you are the immutable and immortal God. If therefore I have furnished you the instrument or the matter of your sufferings, let me also suffer with you the same death. O oh, inhuman sin, how, being so cruel and the cause of so much evil, could you nevertheless be so fortunate, that your repairer should be one, who on account of his infinite goodness, can make you a happy fault? O my sweetest son and my love, who shall be your guard, who shall defend you from your enemies? O would that it were the will of the Father, that I guard you and save you from death, or die in your company, and that you never leave mine. But that which happened to the patriarch Abraham, shall not take place now, Genesis 22:11. for the predestined decree shall be executed. Let the will of the Lord be fulfilled. 
These loving sighs were many times repeated by our Queen, as I shall say farther on, and the Eternal Father accepted them as an agreeable sacrifice, while they were the sweetest diversion of her Most Holy Son. The Instruction Which Our Queen and Lady Gave Me 155. My daughter, since you have by faith and divine light, arrived at a knowledge of the grandeur of God, and of His ineffable condescension in coming down from heaven for you and for all the mortals, let not this benefit be for the idle and fruitless. Adore the essence of God with profound reverence, and praise Him for what you know of His goodness. Receive not light and grace in vain, 2 Corinthians 6.1, and study the encouraging example given by my Most Holy Son and myself in imitation of Him, as you have come to be instructed in it, for as He was the true God, and I His Mother, for in so far as He was man His Most Holy Humanity was created, let us humiliate ourselves in the remembrance of our lowly human nature and confess the greatness of the divinity which is greater than any creature can comprehend. Do this especially when you receive the same Lord in the Holy Sacrament. In this admirable sacrament my Most Holy Son with divinity and humanity, comes to you and remains with you in a new and incomprehensible way. His great condescension is manifest, though it is little taken notice of and respected by mortals, nor does it find the return due to such love. 156. Let then your acknowledgement be accompanied with as much humility reverence and worship as is possible to your combined powers and faculties, for though they be exerted to the utmost limit, they will always fall short of what you owe to God and of what He deserves. And in order that you may as far as possible make up for your deficiencies, offer up that, which my Most Holy Son and I have done, Unite your spirit and your affections in union with the Church triumphant and militant, offering at the same time your life as a sacrifice and praying that all nations may know, confess and adore their true God who became man for all. Thank Him for the benefits, which He has conferred and confers on all, whether they know Him or not, whether they confess or repudiate Him. Above all I ask of you my dearest, to do that which is most acceptable to the Lord and most pleasing to me. That you grieve, and in sweet affection mourn over the gross ignorance and dangerous tardiness of the sons of men, over the ingratitude also of the children of the Church, who having received the light of the divine faith, yet live in such interior forgetfulness of the works and benefits of the Incarnation, yes of God himself, and so much so that they seem to differ from infidels only in some ceremonies and exterior worship. They perform these without spirit or heartiness, many times offending and provoking the divine justice which they should placate. 157. Through this ignorance and torpidity it happens that they are not prepared to receive and acquire the true science of the Most High. They bring upon themselves the loss of the divine light and they deserve to be left in the heavy darkness, making themselves more unworthy than the infidels themselves and entailing upon themselves an incomparably greater chastisement. 
Mourn over such great damage of your neighbors, and pray for help from the bottom of your heart. And in order that you may put away from yourself such formidable dangers, do not undervalue the favors and benefits, which you receive, nor even under pretense of humility belittle or forget them. Remember and consider how distant was the journey, which the grace of the Most High has made in order to call you, Psalm 18.7. Ponder in your mind, how it has waited upon you and consoled you, assured you in your doubts, quieted you in your fears, ignored and pardoned your faults, multiplied favors, caresses and blessings. I assure you my daughter, that you must confess in your heart, that the Most High has not done such things with any other generation. You of yourself can do nothing, you are poor and more useless than others. Let then your thanks be greater than that of all the creatures, 